Good evening. Welcome to the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. Enter freely and of your own will. In this episode, you may find many strange things, for the films to be discussed are old, and they have many memories. So, be there. Be there. Greetings, everyone. Welcome to the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. Thank you much for joining us today for a episode of uh, one of our favorites and a real classic gothic universal film from the mid-30s, Werewolf of London from 1935. So this is Scott Kelly from Boston. Hey, this is Jim Towns from LA. Welcome. Very happy to hit what I consider one of the one of the highs in Universal, one of the first werewolf films ever in yeah. actually the first one by Universal. Wolf of London. So really, really excited to uh, start digging into this one. Yeah, me too. Um, I mean, I I always look at Werewolf of London as as kind of uh, Universal's beta test for the werewolf formula that they, you know, they they do a great job. And then they, then they, you know, six years later kind of perfect with the Wolfman with Lon Chaney. But that said, this is a really interesting iteration that that walks a line like with Jekyll and Hyde and a lot of other uh, like more classic kind of, uh, you know, gothic storytelling. Um, and, and it's just got great performances, great makeup, great music and stuff. I'm, I'm anxious to get into it. Yeah, me too. It definitely hits a lot of tropes from, you know, other stories and, you know, actually some, I don't know what to call them new tropes, but things that I don't, you know, always associate with lycanthropy or, you know, just in of, yeah. you know, werewolves. So yeah, we'll get into the film. So this one's starring, um, Mr. Henry Hull as our star, Dr. Wilfred Glendon, Warner Oland as Dr. Yugami, who's just wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> Valerie is. Hobson as uh, Lisa Glendon, who we know from, of course, Bride of Frankenstein as, um, I guess, call her Mrs. Barron. Lester Matthews as Paul Ames, who is, I don't know what's called a love interest, but he kind of gets into a little bit of a love triangle here, but also known yeah. from one of my favorite films, The Raven, released this year, too. So right. actually involved in a love triangle in The Raven as well. So whatever... This actor just seems to attract the uh, love triangle. <laughs> it's rather a little that scab <laughs> between Lugosi and the Raven, and um, you know, right? Hell in this one. So anyway, directed by Stuart Walker. Let's get right into it. Actually, before we get into it, I, I we cannot fail to mention Jack Pierce, who of course Jack does Pierce, a makeup yes. on this. So yeah, let's talk about Jack Pierce a little bit and the makeup job he did with Henry Hull and the whole the werewolf makeup. Jim, if you get well, you know, you know, Pierce is hot off of you know a couple of years before doing uh, both Frankenstein and then the Mummy. He's at this point uh, incredibly highly regarded, and I think as far as makeups go, you have a few big hits, and the and and any kind of werewolf uh, for any kind of makeup artist is going to be, uh, um, you know, like a like a high a high water mark. It, it's sort of the way you test what you can do to a human, be- a human and a wolf are so physically disparate face and the physiognomy and the bone structure and, and, and hair and obviously everything. I think the way a makeup artist finds to blend those two very different things together into an effective, scary makeup that can also emote, shall we say a little bit, I think is the true test of, of talent. And I think I'm sure, I'm sure Pierce was excited to take, take this uh, on um, we we do know that the the makeup was more extreme originally, and we have mixed stories about whether uh, the censors decided to, to you know the, the studio in in out of deference to censorship scaled it back a little bit to be less savage. 
there's rumors that Hull objected to some of the makeup, possibly. I don't know. I, that sounds like a, a little apocryphal to me based on the research I've done. So what we end up getting is this, uh, the, the widow's peak and the, the we do get the under fangs, the, the snout a little bit, the build up nose. We get this to a modern audience. It looks a little bit like Cats, the Broadway show, just a bit. <laughs> um, but uh, but I like it. I think it's a neat wolf man makeup. And again, kind of a, kind of a beta test for what would be perfected much more when we got into uh, uh, the, the Lon Chaney film. I like this a lot too, actually. And, you know, I've read similar things that, you know, Jack's Jack Pierce's original idea was very similar to what he did with Chaney and the Wolfman, yeah. kind of more of the full facial, you know, a lot of hair, the, you know, the right. double fangs and, you know, definitely more wolf-like. And, and again, I've seen, you know, a number of different stories here. Why uh, ultimately the Hull makeup was, was, toned down but it sounded like i know there's an article from i think it was hull's nephew or great nephew that um i guess hull was a uh, makeup artist in his own right and had yes. asked for much more simplistic makeup and you know facial appliances just so he could emote the acting and honestly i think that was a good call i think i really like this makeup if you're going for half man half wolf not just full beast i think this is a this was a great work. By. I, I, think, I think it is too. I, I agree. It's effective. I think, you know, this makeup plays under somewhat different mood and circumstances. This, this film's a lot more noirish. This film's a lot more atmospheric than a lot of the scenes. I won't say all, but a lot of the scenes in the, in the Wolfman, especially in, in latter Wolfman films, uh, you know, meets Frankenstein, uh, House Dracula, House of Frankenstein. Uh, he's underlit a lot. He's lit in, in the in the lights of street lamps. Again, I'll go back to it's. There's a, there's a very Jekyll and Hyde quality to this film it really piggybacks on top of not if not that storyline at least that that ethos and in doing that i i do think we want to see a, a man whose bestial qualities has come out more than an actual hybrid creature and, and i think that's what we get and i think that's what's effective and i do think hull can bring out a lot of sympathy in his facial expressions through this makeup that that he wouldn't have been had had it been more extreme yeah, and I know the you know the um, movie critics of the day panned this film. Some did of them they? did wow, pan wow. the film because of the similarities with Jekyll and Hyde that they felt yeah. it was almost a complete knockoff. Right. And I, I mean, I guess and you could see that a little bit, but whatever. I I think this is a, a really nice film. I, I think. I think it's the fact that he puts on his little cap and and coat yeah. when he goes out into the London <laughs> fog to 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 be a werewolf and stuff. I do that think was, that's a nod. But but that, that's one of my. That's the thing I love about this film is that Larry Talbot, you know, goes out without shoes on and stuff. This guy like puts a little smart outfit on when he's a werewolf to go. Yeah, out and kill no, he's definitely. Yeah, he's half man, half wolf. Talbot yeah. to me, he's just a mindless beast. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's get into it. So yeah, opening shots of the film. We're not in a mishmash Germany, Switzerland, like we normally are with Universal. We are in Tibet. So opening scene, we're at the kind of a base camp at a mountain in Tibet. We first meet Dr. Wilfred Glendon, who is a botanist and is visiting Tibet in search of a rare flower called the, I'm going to give this my best shot. Mary I practice. I practice. Merfeza lupine lumina, aka lupine. the wolf flower. So I think yes. from here on in, I'm going to call it the wolf flower. Just we'll just call it. Yeah, we'll use wolf. To flower. save myself some embarrassment. <laughs> so um, doctor is in Tibet looking for this flower, and not really sure why. It's, it sounds like it's the only spot in the world that it's located. And again, just being a botanist, he is the kind of a leader in his craft. He's you know well renowned within London and famous guy. So yeah, gentleman um, scientist. I don't. There was not a lot of money in science in that era, in in the era this would have been set in, and it did attract a lot of gentlemen uh, of leisure 
who had the money to fund their own expeditions or travel, or at least new people who would fund their expeditions and travel to Tibet or to Southern California, which is where this was filmed. This this uh, opening scene is actually filmed up at Vasquez Rocks, which a lot of film and TV fans will know as where uh, Kirk fights the Gorn in the Star Trek show series. Oh, no kidding. <laughs> yeah, you can, you can see they're, they're very unique. They're these angled rocks. It looks like someone took a mountain and just leaned it 45 degrees, and there's a bunch of them, yeah. Cool, wow, that's a great... Yeah. Great fact. Same, same spot. So yeah, so we've, we're surrounded by sharpers, and for some reason, they're all very much they're very nervous. They're in, uh, you know kind of running around the base camp, not really sure why. And you know, this kind of brings me back. I think there's a lot of parallels to mummy movies that we see. So it's this outsider visiting a foreign land, and the locals are extremely anxiety ridden about what they're doing. So that's interesting. I never made that connection, but you're absolutely right. And that, well, you know, and what kind of made me think of it too, Jim. So the next scene, we've got a priest. So he's a priest from London yeah. appears on Camelback. And it says, I think that was one of the terms that some that Wilford Glendon comments on is you're the first white man we've seen in right. a year or two. And he's like, well, you're the first white people we've seen or I've seen in 40 years. Yeah. And yeah, so they're, of, they're way out in, in the in the middle of nowhere. Right. This so this flower. right paints the picture that they are just way, way out in the boonies of Tibet. And he kind of plays the part. So this is what brings me back to the mummy that he's giving them kind of a forewarning that Glendon you know, kind of explains to him why they're there, that you need to hike up this mountain to get to a valley to get this flower. And the priest is, doesn't go into a lot of specifics, but kind of warns them against that. And like the local, mm-hmm. you know, the local, you know, feelings are that it, it's an evil place. It's bad luck, probably right. be best not to do that and kind of leaves it at that. And, and of course, um, as, as, as the, the typical, uh, white guy in Asia, uh, you know, Dr. Glenn's like, ah, well, whatever, <laughs> he just keeps going because, because <laughs> he knows best. Right. He's not going to listen to anybody. He's there. I mean, I'm sure he came for a you know long, long way, and mm-hmm. he's very proud. I'm sure he's very he's got some e- yeah. ego there. He's very successful, so he's going to get this flower come hella high water. So he and his partner push on, traverse up this mountaintop, and then enter a cave where, for some reason, things start happening to them. So for what <laughs> when there's an instance where the partner's feet get stuck to the ground. And we're not really yeah, sure why. Yeah. Um, and they don't really explain why. It has nothing to do with the story. But, for, you know, as they enter this this little um, this little cave, his feet get stuck. And then Wilfred starts feeling pellets being thrown at him. So for whatever reason, it's almost like a force trying to keep them out of this cave. And Right, right. It's, it's interesting. There's this idea that the flower exists in this space that is not a normal, you know, uh, physical space and stuff. So it lends a little bit of mythical power to this thing which is at night, it sets it up. Ultimately, they get through the cave okay, no other issues. And Glendon gets on the ground, starts cutting out the flower to bring back to London with him where he is attacked by a werewolf. So during the fight, he's bitten on the arm. It's a rel- relatively quick scene. We kind of see this, you know, the eyes of the werewolf appear yeah. in some rocks and, you know, jumps yeah. on Wolford and then gives him, a, you know, clearly a bite on his right arm. Yeah. And then it's Wolford- pretty intense. I mean, the fight mm. itself is like, you know, for the time, it's, it's a little, they really scrapple. It, it's interesting. It brings, um, me, it brings me back to Captain Wild Women with the lions and the tigers a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little bit. You're kind of like, this is, this is uncomfortable to watch. The wolf, that, the werewolf that attacks him is... A little unfortunately cute for its mm-hmm. <laughs> for its own good. It, it's it's kind of like a a more like a wear cocker spaniel looking kind of makeup, <laughs> but but it is what it is. And I mean, it's still it would obviously be very terrifying, right? So so Glendon is attacked. Yeah, if you entered him into maybe a werewolf like a, a werewolf show, he would win first in first in class. <laughs> Miss Congeniality. Yeah, maybe like a little um, yeah. little bow on the tail, like yeah. 
Not that's, the scariest. This wolf. is a great idea, like a, a like a dog show, except it's a werewolf show, totally. and it's all these different werewolves, totally <laughs> eating the judges and everything. <laughs> and you're disqualified. So yeah, it's, it's a very quick scene. So we see Glendon bit by the werewolf cut scene, and next scene is Wilfred back in London, and he has the flower in his laboratory. And he's conducting some experiments on it. So he's got this almost looks like a, a, a laser or um, it's just it's basically a, a big light. So he calls yeah. it his moonlight. So what he's trying That's to right. do is shine the moonlight on the flower and cause it to bud. Right. And, the, the flower, the, 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 the legend of the flower is that it only blooms in, in moonlight. So he has this device that simulates moonlight and for up until this point isn't able to get the flower to bud. So he's getting a little little bit ticked off and went all this way. And he's being, you know, at least early on, a little unsuccessful with his experiments. Meanwhile, he has dozens and dozens and dozens of people at his home for this botanical party that, you know, his wife kindly reminds him that, you know, you should probably get out from your, you know, dusty old laboratory. You've got to entertain 50 people that are, you know, at their home and looking at basically Wilfred's plant collection. Yeah. Yeah. Which, which he, he kind of could care less about the, the the people and and everything else, but is this the part where she she calls him on his video phone or is that yeah later? he sees I think it seems like anybody that enters or kind of you know yeah. knocks on the door of his laboratory he has his yeah this video phone he has this video phone which they no one they never explain how he no. has he has like this Flash Gordon technology and I guess it's a I guess it's a way of convincing without without talking about it that, that this guy's a brilliant guy and he's he's apparently invented this thing that. You know, Scott, you know, you and I are still trying to work this technology to do Zoom calls and, and do recordings, right? Like, yeah, it's so like, many the, years it's later. like the ring where people have right, the yeah, little cameras exa- on exactly, their doorbells. Yeah, he's invented ring technology. Totally. Um, I just like that. That's just a throwaway. They're like, yeah, we'll just put this. I don't know. Did, did, I, I do wonder if they had that left over from a cereal or from something. And they're like, it'd be neat if he just had this too. And it does. It just, it just makes you think like, holy crap, this guy's brilliant. He's focused on this flower, but what else could he be doing if he wasn't so like monomaniacal? But that is his, his failing is that he's so focused on on this, he's ignoring a lot of things in his in his life, including uh, his bride. And, you know, right from the get-go, you meet bride Lisa, who, you know, the first interactions is that's, you know, kind of teasing each other a little bit, but she's making uh, comments that I've been on the impression that you're going to divorce me since you get back from Tibet. I haven't seen you. It sounds like he's always been a little kind of a workaholic, you know, not, you know, 100% engaged in their marriage. But since returning yeah. home from Tibet with this flower, he's been exceedingly absent from their marriage and just their right. overall relationship. So, Ignoring you know, his bride, who is who is a good 20 years younger than him, probably as yeah. well. I, I mean, I do think the one I mean. So Henry Hall is not a spring chicken in this movie. I don't know how old what is is Henry Hall was probably like in his 40s when they made this. He's a man of mature years and he's got this young attractive uh wife. And I think a lot of what we get into and we'll get into this more as we go on, um a lot of his issues I think a lot of stuff is a metaphor for the idea that he's not being attentive to his wife in all sorts of ways. Right. She's very young. Yeah. She's, I mean, Valerie Hobson is probably, I'm guessing 20, 21. Pretty I mean, young, I think yeah. Bride of Frankenstein, which actually comes out this year. Oh gosh. Yeah. I mean, she might be 21. So she's, she's very young. Right. And uh, you can certainly, <laughs> yeah, you can certainly tell how looks, however old he is, early forties, you know, he looks like he's you know been through a couple of battles, but mm-hmm. actually, do you know what he reminded me of? And it's, it's more of the voice. In some of the acting a little bit is, and I don't know if you you thought the same thing, 
is Colin Clive. Oh yeah, for sure. He he's got that that nervous energy thing going on. Something um, with the voice too. I mean, Clive has such a unique tone or is auditory the way he he speaks. Just the syllables and it's, yeah. yes. I mean, I've not heard anybody like Clive, and he reminded me like right from the opening get going to bed. He reminded me a little bit of Clive, just the way yeah. he he projected a- his voice. There's a brittleness to to his voice too. I think it's interesting, and, and I think just like the prevailing ideals of what's an attractive woman have changed over decades. You know, from the 40s to the 60s and 70s to now. I think what made a leading man the, the criteria ch- changed sort of within these couple of years of the 30s into the 40s and 50s. The more robust muscular athletic kind of guy took over from from this other type of leading man like Henry Hull or like like Colin Clive these very narrow very ascetic looking kind of gentlemen i think it there was a point where this kind of person was considered a hunk you know uh yeah <laughs> on stage and and in and, 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 and early theater think about someone like uh, even Buster Keaton or something like that, who are like you know, these narrow kind of dudes, very bony faces and stuff. It's interesting. Yeah, you make that connection. The, the, he does. I could see Colin Clive playing this role easily. For sure. Yeah, you're right. You start getting into like the Charles Atlas type characters of like the 50s. and you- yeah, yeah, or you get into like Leif Erickson or something like that. Like we, we're, we're, we're going to do Night Monster coming up pretty soon. And you look at at that kind of guy or like a Johnny uh, Weissmuller in, in Tarzan. It's just, it's a different Aesthetic and, and, you know, different strokes for different folks. That's whatever. So Lisa finally pulls Wilfred from his laboratory into the botanical party and along the way runs into her old beau, Paul Ames. It's not like they were childhood friends and mm-hmm. um, very innocent enough, but we right from the get-go, you could see kind of the sideway glances that Lisa is shooting over, <laughs> shooting over to Wilfred. So I don't know, the, my, my gut is telling me they probably had some you know, something had happened to them in the past. There's some jealousy or something. She seems a little bit on edge having um, Paul around. Almost, uh, how do I say it? Kind of a little bit annoyed that Wilfred is not more jealous that, as, he, as he pretty maybe should be. Like, oh, that might be. That could be, yeah. <laughs> she sort of wants him to be a little jealous. Interesting, he doesn't, yeah. like he doesn't care. It's, it's this detachedness that, that he's got that, that um, I think is the, and, and it gets worse and worse, obviously, as, as the film goes on. That's a great point. I always just took it to that. She was, she and Paul were just very easy interacting and very, you know, you know, just the conversation was so easy. And she kind of glanced yeah. over at, at Wilfred and he was like, could, I mean, he kind of was watching them, but yeah, to your point, really couldn't care less. So I think you're absolutely right. She was more, she was hoping that he would get pissed and really was At least, yeah, just, just, just a little. That um, makes a ton of sense. Yep. And, and none of this is helped by her Mrs. Cooper. Coombs, who or Miss Coombs, who's who's uh, sort of the I don't know what to call it. She's sort of like the grand dame of the you know the, this little social scene sure. here. Puts on the lavish parties and and you know connects people up and stuff. And of course, she is all about the gossip and all about the fact that, that Lisa and Paul have a history together. And she's sort of titillated at this idea of like their past together or well, their former the former bows. And he proposed yeah. to her years ago. Right. And it you know it turns out she was six and Paul was. And she yeah, likes the yeah, older guys because right, Paul's like yeah. 10 years older than her. And he's like, yeah, yeah. Paul is yeah, like- he's six. only 10 years older than her as opposed to Wolford, who's like 22 years <laughs> older than her. So it's just, he's, it's like he's, Paul was, he's, so Paul was 16 and proposed when she was six? Like, oh. like Almost in her generation. Oh my gosh. Uh, but that's weird. That's uh, weird. Yeah, it's like, it's like the Indiana Jones thing where you do the math backwards with Indiana and, and Mary and you're like, hang on a second. <laughs> <laughs> that's- that's uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so so uh, it, it's just this idea of this this polite social circle 
Um, and I think some of the fun for me of this movie is this idea of, uh, you know, Dr. Glendon, first of all, doesn't enjoy this polite society and small talk, chit chat, cucumber sandwich kind of scene anyway. And then as he, his bestial side takes over more and more and more, you see this contrast between, uh, how do I want to say, the artifice we put on our culture, you know, the, the manners and the, the decorum and everything. And then here's this guy like roaming the streets biting people and stuff. He's sure. the, the return to savagery, I guess. Um, and that contrast is, is fun to watch come into conflict in this movie. He doesn't seem like a, ter- like a terribly fun man. And I know yeah. there were some passing comments that Lisa makes later in the film that, geez, what's, what's happened to you? You've, you, you've changed. And yeah. I don't know, nothing, nothing about him really. Uh, yeah. And, and I, I would say this is maybe why, what I, I I do think it came out in another era, uh, in a war war era, and that attributed to some success. But why the the Wolfman is a lot more... I mean, they're both well-made films, but maybe the Wolfman is a little more fun because Larry Talbot is that guy like you wish you could go have a beer with or something. Larry Talbot is such a, a, a nice, likable guy that the tragedy of what happens to him is, is really sad. Uh, again, it's it's like man-made monster when we talked about that. Exactly. Um, you see the fall of this kind of shining spirit. Dr. Wolfer Glennon is not a shining spirit. He's, you know, he's a different type of character. So his inevitable corruption into into the wolf state it operates a little differently and it's not quite as emotional. It just gets harsh, right? Yeah. There's not as far, there's not as long of a fall. Yeah. No, it's a super point. I thought man-made monster as well. Like you said, Liz Talbot yeah. or um, Chaney just yeah. played such a great, <clears throat> great character with that, you know, the character arc as being somebody who's just, you know, jovial and yeah. life loving. And then ultimately becomes this, this the, the torture of that story. guy knowing what's going on. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. Doesn't um, sound like and- Wilfred really started. And we kind of started maybe, you know, somewhere in the middle. He was always just kind of a mon- monotone, Kind of a recluse, kind of a, yeah, a little bit of a curmudgeon, really. So uh, at this party, a Dr. Yogami shows up. He's played by uh, Werner Oland, who uh, was a veteran actor at this time. He'd done a bunch of, uh, he played Charlie Chan in in like a thousand movies or something at this point. (laughs) They made so many of those Charlie Chan movies. And he was uh, very, very well known for that. So he was, he was a bit of, uh, I guess, I guess you'd call it celebrity casting. He was, he was a known uh, quantity. For sure. Yeah. I knew him a little bit from the Charlie Chan films. Like you said, I I think he might've done a couple before this, but really, you know, post Werewolf of London went on to play Charlie Chan in many, many films. But we should mention that he was, he was from Sweden, but, but, but he did, (laughs) He did have um, Eurasian uh, heritage, which which did give his his face just just enough of a whatever you'd want to call it, so so that in the 30s he could pass as an as an Asian man. I mean, they did the same thing sort of call off, right? So yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> or Fu Manchu and stuff like that. I just I don't think they had to like heavily make him up uh, like they did Boris Karloff. They had to do the epicanthic eyelids and all that all that jazz to to, to turn him into Fu Manchu. Werner Olin had. Uh, just a unique look. He's a stocky guy as opposed to uh, Henry Hull's kind of narrow build and stuff. Uh, yeah, so he shows up at the party kind of trying to get in there to talk to Dr. Glendon. Yeah, starts speaking to Dr. Glendon and right off the bat, Glendon says or asks him, have we met before? Mm-hmm. And, you know, Yorgami's, it's like there's no secret. Spoilers, they did, right. they have. <laughs> yeah, well, yes, we have. We met in Tibet. We were on a similar mission. And, you know, Glendon never really questions that at all. Like, yeah. I mean, it, wouldn't he know whether or not he's met, you know, Dr. Yugami? I mean, obviously, 
you know, spoiler alert, you know, fast forward an hour from now, we find out Yugami was the werewolf that bit him. That bit but at this him, point yeah. in the story, there's no way Glendon would have suspected right. that. Maybe it's like a pheromone thing or something as, as he's now start, starting to turn into a werewolf. Maybe it's it's almost like a sense that we don't have, like dogs can, can you know, tell when there's an earthquake or something. I don't know. For some reason, they thought they had met before and... Aragami confirms, yeah, we met in Tibet. And you said we were on a similar mission and uh, they were searching for a flower. <laughs> and I always love this word. So the flower was a cure for werewolfery. Yes. I love I love that. I love we, were, that. We, were, we were working out the vernacular in, in real time here uh, in films for, for werewolfism. Uh, werewolfery definitely was, was not something that made the cut. But, you know, hey, okay. Yeah, it's a cure. Uh, so the, this flower is a cure for werewolfery. And it's funny, he describes it as, or this creature, as a satanic creature, which I thought was kind of interesting. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which, you know, if, if we can take a slight sidebar here, um, sure. we talk about this film being very important because it does it does introduce most of the tropes that we associate in, in modern pop culture with were, werewolfism. Werewolf, werewolfery. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, traditionally, the the full moon being bitten by a werewolf, uh, silver, a lot of things like silver to some degree, but 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 definitely the moon and the biting turning you into a werewolf have very little to do with traditional werewolf lore in you know Eastern Europe and in many other parts of the, the world. Usually, a werewolf becomes a wolf or any kind of lycanthrope. Anybody who turns into in Inuit people have were walruses. You know, I, most cultures have a character within their traditional mythology. Of, of a human that can or does turn into some sort of other type of animal. It's a shapeshifter. It's a, it goes back into, you know, every, every mythology and, and, you know, ancient, ancient uh, belief system of, of almost across the globe. Usually in Eastern Europe, uh, werewolves were somebody who made a deal with the devil or who uh, sometimes drank water from a wolf's paw print. Uh, there was a lot of things that could happen that would turn you into a, a wolf. They were usually, uh, intentional people wanted to do this they would they would go off and they would put a wolf skin on and and sit you know by fire or something like that the the idea of it being a uh, like an affliction is a very modern version. It, it occurs very rarely in, in the mythology. And the the whole the the full moon thing, as far as anyone can, as far as I've ever read, is it, it just was made out of whole cloth. It, it just doesn't have anything to do with the, the tradition. Um, I I thought I've heard Kurt Siodmak, who wrote the Wolfman. Uh, the 41 film with Lon Chaney take a lot of credit for these things, but we do see some of them appear here in well, we're off of London six years earlier. So, you know, who's to say what and where, but it is interesting that, that this film, and then of course uh, being reinforced by, by the, the latter 41 film with Lon Chaney changed everything we think about werewolves. It, it reinvented the myth into a modern, like I said, a pop culture myth. And, and it's very important for those reasons, because I think it works because there are rules. If you can tie yourself up to a chair during the, full moon then maybe you're okay if you can shoot somebody with a silver bullet you can save their soul or whatever there's a lot new but there's a lot that it carries over from those ancient myths and the the idea of the idea of of because wolves aren't evil wolves aren't you know vicious i mean they, they can be aggressive they can be very dangerous obviously they're wild animal just like a bear or you know anything but the idea that like the the beast inside every each one of us is is released by the the bite of a wolf or whatever like that i think is an important myth and and it's it's sort of a 20th century myth it's a myth that that was invented by these films and it we say this this film was influenced a lot by Jekyll and Hyde which is all about the duality of man obviously 
I would say this film and The Wolfman go on to have their cast their own shadow in a lot of gothic storytelling and, and everything moving forward for the next hundred years. To build on your point, Jim, for you know, more of the modern audiences or for the younger viewers that may have not have seen this, but you're familiar with Black Panther, the Marvel movie. Early stories of the, of the werewolf was very similar to the Black Panther, that it was the chosen one, that the mm-hmm. strongest in the tribe was given almost the right of, of this power. It was this like, it was almost like a, a promotion within the tribe to yeah, be given yeah. this. It, it wasn't considered a curse, but it was almost a gift that you, like, you were now like the supreme protector of your tribe. And I, I think without the Wolfman, I don't think you have, say, the Incredible Hulk. What's, what's the Incredible Hulk except somebody who something happens to and then reverts to this other form every once in a while? It's very, you know, it's Jekyll and Hyde, but it's also very much, you know, a Wolfman transformation idea. Glenda and Yorigami finishing up the conversation and um, Yorigami would like to see the flower that he believes that Glendon has taken back. Glendon refuses. Uh, Wilfred asks Yorigami exactly how does one become a werewolf? And Yorigami explains that it's usually through a bite. So Yorigami rubs his arm where he had been bitten, where Wilfred had been bitten by the the wolf. They, they, at the party, there's this giant, you know, I guess it's supposed oh, to be like some a sort Venus of fly trap almost. Like, they yeah, yeah, to. yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that the, the special effects team kind of, you know, rigged up and, and, and it moves and they're feeding little things to it and stuff. And it's just a fun, you know, uh, what I like about a lot of Universal films, they, they introduce this fantastic idea like a werewolf or like a creature from the Black Lagoon. And then they give you some little uh, nugget of science that makes it seem a little more possible. And, and just like the, they, they talk about in Christian Black Lagoon, they talk about discovering the, the fish that's, you know, from the, you know, a, from ancient times that there was still a lot alive is it's the lung fish or whatever. Um, and a lot of other, you know, films, especially again in the fifties, you get in a lot of these, even Godzilla, they talk about, uh, you know, the modern phenomenon where, where there's still trilobites and things around. They do this thing where they, they give you just a little bit of credibility of like, look, there are more things to discover that we don't understand. And 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 the, the big Venus flytrap thing, for lack of a better name in this film, is like that. Like there are marvels of the natural world that we are just still now discovering. And if this thing can be discovered, then why is it not possible that someone could turn into a beast? Open up the next scene and... Wilford's lab, and he's again using the simulated moonlight to attempt to bloom. So he has three blossoms that he's attempting to get to bloom. So he puts it under the light. Blossom, for whatever reason, this time starts to bloom. And as he's reaching out to kind of touch the blossom, his hand crosses across the moonlight and yeah. starts seeing the animation of um, the werewolf. The werewolfery begins to happen, I guess. The werewolfery begins. <laughs> Commence so, the werewolfery. Right. So Glendon's hand it becomes full of hair, of course. So yeah. it's that moonlight, or at least the artificial moonlight, that's now prompting his early st- change into um, into a werewolf. Yeah, the next scene's really quick. So we're at a tea party with uh, Lisa and Paul. And Lisa's aunt, who I guess plays a little bit of a, a major role in the next scene. The Jan is inviting Lisa and Paul to, she's having a party, just a, a tea party with a lot of her friends, would like everybody to come. And of course, Wolford is, you know, not the party, not the party animal, no pun intended. He's right. you know, very happy in his lab, um, not the socialite that... Lisa is, and you know, apparently Paul is too, as he's trying to reconnect with his old beau. You know, very happy to take her any place, happy to join her to the, go to this party with the aunt. So um, happy he, to uh, to stand in for her husband, let's say, which which is is sort of again like I'm getting into this theme here where 
Wolford just has trouble being a husband to his wife kind of in, in all sorts of ways in doing that. Someone, someone else decides that maybe they need to step in and, and be kind of a husband to his wife if he can't do it. Yeah. And Wolford, uh, I mean, he almost says as much a little bit later in the film. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm not what you need me to be. So you found my replacement, you yeah. know, something along those lines. So yeah. Wolford, you know, eventually is becomes very aware that he's losing his wife and he's kind of a crap husband. Yeah. I mean, he still loves her and he loves her up until the end. And we see that, but but he he becomes more, and maybe that's the journey he goes on is that he just sort of becomes more self-aware and selfless or something as this goes on. Cause he he starts out being very selfish. He's, he's just obsessed with his, his experiments and what he's trying to do and, you know, ignores the other obligations he has. It's funny. Like we have a few, you know, the film is set in London, obviously as, as the title, but there's never a, in, in typical kind of, you know, 30 studio, filmmaking there's we get a few establishing shots but then really it's just kind of rain slicked cobblestone streets and 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 whatnot on on the back lot of of universal it's one of the things like it could be anywhere it could be berlin and it could be the bowery in new york or it could be anywhere like they managed even in my point is for universal and again i was talking about this one of my favorite things about the studio is like for a film that actually has london in its title london plays almost no part in this film it it could be anywhere it's just an anonymous urban you know kind of kind of 30s uh, set era <laughs> yeah i know it is a lot of sets but when they go outside it is very beautiful extremely oh, gothic yeah. Oh, oh yeah no they're great sets they're great great yeah sets. yeah um i love it when they i love me... when they travel outside when they get out of i come kind of with lisa on this i really wish you would spend more time out of the laboratory and just around around well yeah you want to see him roaming around and stuff um right. yeah so so the next night obviously there's this uh tea party going on in with uh mrs Coombs uh, putting on and they're all invited, but uh, Wilford now focused definitely on not only like his work, but also like this kind of problem he realizes he has now um, decides to bow out. So she invites Lisa. So it's, it's not kind of an outdoor, um, you know, folks sitting around the table. So it's Lisa and Paul's there, Haran's there and inexplicably Dr. Yogami shows up. So he himself also gets an invite to this this tea party. So Yogami, we'll get into it a bit, is there to see uh, Wilford because he would like to get a sample of one of these flowers. So right. he's there and just kind of bumps into you know this little party that's going on. And and, and, I, and I think Mrs. I keep calling her Mrs. Miss Coombs is interested in him because he's kind of exotic, right? I mean, that's the he, he's a bit of a ooh, let's very, have him at the party. Very know. interesting looking, I think it yeah. works. Something along those lines. I, I, think, I think Miss Coombs has kind of a thing for Dr. Yogami. <laughs> well, she's, she finds kind of, she's flirting with Paul. She's flirting like it yeah, kind of comes a little bit later on, but she's she's a bit of a player. Well, when you when you don't have to work for a living, I think you find your entertainment where you can, right? There you go. <laughs> so Yogami um, gets down to why he's actually at the house. So he finds uh, Wilfred in his laboratory. So I think we let the, the spoiler out of the bag or the kind of the secret out of the bag. So as we know, Yogami is a werewolf. So he, of course, needs these flowers that Wolford has gotten from Tibet to help antidote himself or to help, you know, stop himself right. from turning into a werewolf because now we're on the verge or on the eve of uh, three nights of full moon. So he you know, desperately needs these flowers. So goes into the goes into the lab with Wilford and Wilford completely denies him. It basically asks him oh, nicely or not so nicely just to leave. Right. And Yogami does so and He's a polite werewolf. Um, <laughs> it, the, it's it's funny that both of these guys, you know, they're not dock workers or, or stevedores or something. You know, they're 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 members of polite society with manners and everything. Again, like I said, who occasionally turn into these these animals and stuff. And the contrast there is kind of a fun thing. 
So before we leave, Yuragami makes another reference to, you know, those who are bitten by a werewolf become a werewolf. And, and you know, again, Rob Rob's Wilford's arm where he's bit. So this kind of plants the seed in um, Wilford's mind that, you know, geez, maybe something has happened to, or had happened to me when I got bit to Tibet. So the next scene is now Wilford in his study reading an encyclopedia about um, lycanthrophobia, or I mean, you know, right. like a lycanthrope, lycanthropy. So he's actually reading a, a um, passage in this encyclopedia under lycanthropy. Anthrophobia and trying to understand exactly what you know about werewolfism and everything. And there's a you know a little passage in this um, on the page about the flower. Right. It, he didn't seem to know anything about that before. Like he just wanted this flower for some unknown reason. Maybe yeah. it's just and, coincidental, or I don't and know. And just just like the thing in the Invisible Man, it it turns out that this thing he was working with has this other. Uh, power or side effect that he was not aware of. So, so unfortunately, this is, this is why we do clinical tests now, <laughs> as we're knee deep in COVID. And yeah, yes, <laughs> to make sure it doesn't so, turn you into a werewolf. That's right, werewolfism or werewolfery. Yeah, we're trying to avoid that as much as we can. <laughs> we, need, we need much less werewolfery. As he's reading the encyclopedia, so he's busy, you know, kind of doing his research. We see this hand. So, you know, kind of a quick shot of the laboratory. We just see this this hand of somebody, you know, we're not really sure who it belongs to. We can, I guess we can kind of figure yeah. with a pair of scissors and he's clipping the flowers that of course, Yorigami had asked, had asked yeah. Glendon for and was denied. Yeah. So, so uh, I guess the manners do fall, fall away at some point because if, if he can't get it by, you know, courtesy, he's going to get it through yeah, the other, other means. So at this point we see the two flower buds you know, being stolen. We start seeing Wolford's first transformation into this werewolf right right so, and and here we have this this amazing first transformation scene which is very different from the way they do it in, in the wolfman uh where it's it's a bunch of it's a it's a very locked off shot launching juniors on a, on a plaster pillow so it doesn't move at all his head is kind of tucked into it so it can't move the camera's locked off and they would do a little makeup have him get up do some makeup lay back down take a few frames, get up, do a few more makeup, more hair, do a few frames, add a nose, do a few more frames. And they would just, uh, you know, cross dissolve all those shots into it. So it turns into this blended thing. That's the one we were very, uh, you know, familiar with. This one is a very aggressive technique that they tried where, you know, it combines uh, direction and optical effects and and practical makeup effects where Dr. Glenn is kind of walking through his property somewhere and he's passing in front of all, or passing behind rather, all these pillars. And every time he passes behind one, he's a little more transformed and passes one, he's a little more and a little more and a little more. And this is a complicated tracking shot where the camera's moving along with Hull in, on some kind of process screen. They're superimposing a background behind him. And then they're superimposing these pillars. They're almost animating them as, as he passes by. There's a lot of three-dimensional physics in the shot like this that, that come into play that it's one of those things like if you get it 99% right, it doesn't look right at all. You have to get it almost 100%. And this gets it maybe 99 and it's not perfect. And, and obviously the you get some lining and stuff when, when you get the superimpositions, but it's still, it's just a neat idea of, as opposed to one constant transformation in a wolf, he goes through these stages where he's just, every time he's just a little bit more and a little more and a little more. And then finally we see him in, revealed in this Jack Pierce makeup with the 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 fangs and the snout and the the high widow's peak kind of heavy brow and stuff. This really iconic look and stuff, uh, and it's just I love it. It's such a great scene, and and I do think even if you don't want to go back and rewatch, you know, anyone listening the the whole movie, you definitely probably can go on YouTube and just click Werewolf, Werewolf in London transformation scene. And, and check it out. It's worth watching again. This is the first werewolf film of Universal, the first transformation yep. that we're ever seeing from Universal. Yeah. And I can't think, and you know, maybe I'm wrong, somebody can correct me, 
of another, I guess I'll just call it a moving transformation. Normally it's, you know, when Talbert or, you know, anybody's transforming and, you know, getting, you know, changes to their, yeah. something like the Mad Doctor and, you know, the House of Dracula. It's always, like you said, that that concrete pillow there. It's it's a still shot. Right. And it's this time lapse of hair slowly growing on them right. and fangs yeah. growing in, within their mouth. This is a moving shot. And I'm, I'm, just, I'm a little surprised that they never went back to this because this is really, yeah. this is really neat. I think they do a little bit of, you know, they did this in some of the Jekyll and Hyde movies too is you know because it's black and white film obviously we're not seeing color they would film actors under uh, like a uh, red light and they would have makeup done in red on them uh, on their bodies faces hands whatever they would do a gradual shift from red to green lighting and under green light under red lighting the red makeup is invisible because it's you know blending in under the green lighting the red makeup suddenly turns dark um and i think they do a little bit of that in this they did they use that for to great effect in in the march the frederick march jack on hyde so it's just like anything it's, it's always a combination of, of techniques that, that ends up working best it's never just the one thing and now nowadays we would say like yeah you can do practical effects maybe augment them a little bit with digital and, and you get some really good looking stuff and what you see differently i mean obviously the transformation is different from things that we'll see in the future you know things that we're aware of but there's some humanity even when he turns into a werewolf that you see him as he's it, it seems like and this is just my opinion that he doesn't become even though his his physical features are that of a wolf he still yes. has the mental capacity of a human being or yes of, of yeah, yeah he still has his his, be, his awareness and faculties because, as opposed to you know lawrence talbot right because he i mean physically he has taken on the form of a wolf but goes inside he puts on his coat puts on right. his little hat his scarf and takes to the town like he's you know going to a play, exactly. uh, which is kind of <laughs> kind of interesting. So yeah, yeah, and, and again, it's, I'll say I said it before it's it's one of the things I love about this pr- particular movie is this take on this werewolf is that it just it, again it, it it brings out the bestial instincts in him while not turning him into fully a, a, a creature. He's not on all fours. He's not jumping off of rocks and, and attacking things much like uh, Lawrence Talbot does, which is definitely a charm I really enjoy with this film. I think it makes yeah. it so different from. And again, I, I want to say different from things we've seen because this was the first. So really, they you know obviously they changed their maybe whatever the feedback was. The feedback from the critics was that it was too similar to Jekyll and Hyde. I mean, obviously Hyde, you know, had some bestial qualities but looked more human. And you know, right. might have been some of the slack they received on this film is that yeah. the werewolf looked too human. And then you see Talbert, who is clearly 100% beast. I mean, he doesn't look human yeah. almost whatsoever besides and, the clothing, right? And evolving all into into the 80s with with the howling and American Wolf in London and then into dog soldiers and underworld and all those things too, where, where the, the werewolves get more and more bestial actually. It's interesting, but again, it, all you can do, I think in a movie like this is establish the rules of how it works within the context of the, this movie and obey them. And within those it works. He doesn't, he never, he ever speaks while he is full on in wolf mode. He does seem to lose that ability, but he does retain a lot, a lot of his, his, uh, it seems like he could like open a door or something. He does have to jump through a window and stuff he he, he does some of his uh, sentience right and again i'm not sure if that's just the early as he's transforming into a wolf whether that maybe that just you know lapses in time that's say 10 minutes yeah. or 15 minutes after you know, he's really afflicted with this you know this lycanthropy or whatever yeah, you know, whatever yeah. Call it. maybe if this went on longer maybe if he was a werewolf for a few years it would change you know because you never know um, even with, I'm almost thinking like, you know, if like, say within a half an hour, I mean, does he lose whatever re- remaining humanity? Like if he's, right. if he was in his, in the house and he turned, he transformed into this wolf after say a half an hour or 45 minutes, would he still have the, you know, the wherewithal to put on a coat and a hat? I, yeah, I yeah. we don't know. We don't know. Yeah. So, so there's this um, fancy cocktail party type thing going on that 
that Lisa and Paul have have gone to at at uh, Miss Coombs house. And he seems to sort of make a beeline for it once he's in, in wolf form. Yeah. So Yurigami men- makes a mention earlier on that a werewolf wants to instinctively kill that which it loves the most. And there's mm-hmm. a really quick scene of when Wolfred, I want to say he's in mid-transformation and maybe just newly trans um, transformed into wolf, that he has a flashback to Lisa leaving for the party with Paul. And that was kind of the last you know, remembrance that he had before he hit the town. So yeah. yeah, like you said, making a beeline to try to find Lisa. Yeah. Yeah. Through, I mean, I guess he knows where she's at. He doesn't have to go by scent, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so he, he heads right to this party. The party's in full swing. Miss Coombs apparently has had a little too much to drink. At the, something. At the Somebody put something in her drink or she's laughing hysterically. Yeah. I'm not really yeah. sure what's going on. A little bit on the verge of whatever, and and so and she she's Lisa's aunt. Is that how this works? I believe. The, yeah, I think at some point she calls her aunt, aunt or aunt. Yeah, yeah. Whether so. it's a you know just a term of endearment or or an right. actual biological connection, I don't know. But Lisa and and Paul escort Miss Miss Coombs upstairs to her rooms. She's going to retire for a little bit at least. Uh, maybe sober up a bit. <laughs> whatever um, it is, come down off of whatever she's on. But yeah, so just. Prior to that, her and Yogami are on the balcony and hear that wolf howling. Right. Right. In London. In London. Which is a great, yeah. You get to see Yogami already knows what is going down. Yeah. 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 You see him in his face and stuff, which is, which is kind of fun. And she's just like, oh, that's weird. That's not, and she's laughing. There's no wolves in and, London. <laughs> and yeah. And she just gets almost hysterical. And it's like, I'm, I, I'm always like this when I'm nervous. And finally... I know someone makes mention to Lisa, like, yeah, you should probably get your aunt upstairs and, yeah, um, yeah. you know, put her to bed because, you yeah, know, she's, she's, people she's are wondering what the hell's... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She gets on the table and starts dancing or something, right? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, so she's escorted upstairs and, and, and Lisa's up there with her, sort of tending to her a bit. Uh, I think Paul Paul goes downstairs to back to the party or something. Yeah, he goes back to the party, and then you know at some point Lisa joins him at the party, and you know very shortly thereafter they hear um, Aunt screaming from upstairs, yeah. and of course rush upstairs to see what the matter is, and um, she's just yelling about um, seeing the devil. The devil's in here. Yeah. She keeps repeating, and yeah. you know the red eyes, and and you've had this great scene of of the Wolfman, you know, the werewolf coming in the window, kind of at her, which is very. It's weird, like he's breaking and entering too. I mean, it's a weird thing because he's a man too and a wolf. And so he's, you know, it's like a home invasion and the, there's savage intent in his eyes and stuff. And, and she's so vulnerable, obviously, and stuff like that. It's a very, it's unnerving. The werewolf it's a, it's like up, a POV. Yeah. Yeah. POV. Uh, yeah, yeah. That's yeah. exactly what it is. A POV shot, him coming up, you know, kind of through the balcony, through the, those double doors yeah. and seeing her laying on the bed. It's a really fantastic shot. Yeah. Obviously I think, I think expecting to find Lisa and, and obviously finds a more elderly woman mm-hmm. instead. So they go up and they try to comfort uh, her who's, who's uh, in, in hysterics. And we have another wolf howl that they hear, which the wolf, the wolf howls in this movie are really effective. I, I, my one thing about, if I could say about the Wolfman series is, is Cheney's wolf howls. If they, if they augmented them, they didn't do a whole lot to them. The wolf howls here, it's a mix of Henry Hall's actual Henry Hall actually howling. And then a, a timber wolf howling uh, sort of blended together in a, in a very effective way, for, especially for the era. And it's uh and it's chilling no less. So because of the setting, because you're in, you're in downtown London for gosh sakes, you know, 
Yeah, and I read that too. That it was actually Hull's, yeah. Hull's voice, which I think is you know really really neat. You know, dubbed on top of an actual Timberwolf. So yeah. Um, I'm trying to think now, going back to Cheney's Wolfman, exactly that howl. I'm not. I'm, We're going to do some research into what what his his yeah. howl really is. I, I think it's just. I think it's Cheney just doing it. I, I wouldn't be surprised if he could do it. He had he had a big chest. He could probably get the diaphragm in, into that and really get a howl out there. We'll have to see if they, if it find out somehow if they augmented it or not, but they definitely did it here and, and it's effective. And I'm sure they used it. If they had it in their library, I'm sure you hear it all the time. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if it's what, what they hear in, in um, young Frankenstein with the, the, the werewolf, right. their wolf thing. <laughs> werewolf. Their wolf. Their castle. <laughs> uh, yeah. You never know. So this is like we're kind of into the the middle toward you know towards the coming towards the end of the film. I mean, it's not a not a super long film. What is it? It's an hour and fifteen minutes. It's it's less than ninety. So there's a super quick scene of as they go down and as Lisa and Paul go up to tend to the aunt. That's a really quick scene of now werewolf um, Wilfred out on the street mm-hmm. and kills kills a girl and it again there's just the scenery being outside with that the old you know like the gothic bricks and just the the kind of the fog around london just a really really beautiful scene yeah i could um, i could i could do with more of this in this film and less of the the dinner party stuff i love the atmosphere and i love like yeah the moonlight on the on the wet cobbled stones and stuff i think beautiful and yeah and him him in that that cool cap and the Mm-hmm. I don't know what you call that, the half coat where it's just got half of it's like a cape and half of it's like a coat. <laughs> There's probably a word for it. It's the kind of thing Holmes would wear all the time with his deer stalker. Right. Uh, all he needs is a little pipe and uh yeah. <laughs> Where werewolf Sherlock Holmes. See? It'd be great. That that can go with with our uh monkey and uh submarine. The monkey and the submarine. You're getting yeah. a whole ton of story ideas from this podcast. <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm making this. <laughs> you need to copyright I, and, this stuff. Yeah. Uh, again, I just I do enjoy this this contrast between the the savage and the the cultured and his descent in this because because from here you know we we have been focused so much on this part of London culture this like high culture with tea parties and uh, garden events and 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 cocktail events and pretty soon we get into this boarding house that Dr. Glennon ends up taking kind of refuge in with these gossipy ladies and stuff and the and the more the more Cockney uh, uh, accents and stuff. And I think it's it's neat how the film itself sort of devolves from polite culture into a little bit more, you know, savage culture. There's a bit of a split in the road, right? So really quick after Wilfred kills a girl off screen, but yeah. the following morning, morning, there's a scene of a Yogami at a desk reading a newspaper. And of course, the headline is murder on Goose Lane, a Goose Lane murder, right. unidentified girl horribly mangled which is just yeah, yeah. horribly mangled yeah <laughs> horribly mangled so um no doubt that you know that she just you know torn to pieces awful and yogami is just absolutely distraught you know just put, you know, puts his head down on the desk and i mean knows exactly what's happened he feels remorse because he's not that he was directly i guess he was directly he was yeah i mean it, it's yeah. sort of his fault because he he bit he bit glendon so yeah so um yeah you got me feeling very distraught about that and then you know the next few scenes happen very very quickly they're not very long um we're in scotland yard and we have now a police bobby sitting down speaking to the first time we see him a colonel thomas Forsyth, who is colonel of scotland yard and he's yeah. explaining i guess sounds like this bobby found the horribly mangled quote-unquote horribly mangled girl so he's trying to explain to the colonel exactly how it all went down what he found and paul is there as well and without missing a beat paul (laughs) paul suspects that it's a werewolf and again we have these 
great jumps of logic, but yeah. you know, but Paul has some sort of experience with this too. He's traveled, right? It sounds like he's seen this before. Yeah, it doesn't go you know too too deep into it, and I'm I'm not hundred percent sure what Paul what his occupation is. I thought he might have been Scotland. Yeah, they call him Cap at some point Captain Paul. So I'm not sure if he's yeah. military or if he's Scotland. Yeah, do you have any sense of that? No, I, I. That's weird. I thought he was some sort of like journalist or something. So I have no, I have yeah, no idea. Maybe he, he had been in some sort of military or something like that. Hadn't he been in America or something that they talk about at the Garden Party? And I think, I think what he cites is something, some gobbledygook that maybe has something to do with Native Americans or something. Uh, anyone listening, if, we, if we've gone off the rails here, maybe we're just inventing <laughs> part of the movie ourselves. I don't know. <laughs> but, but yeah, no, but Paul does mention that he's seen, he's seen victims like this that have just, you know, been ravaged. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, yeah he, and he's not... He's not uh, like a milk toast guy. He's 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 been around and he's he's seen some things. So so he has, he does have something to bring. He does have a purpose for being here, at, uh, meeting with with the cops and stuff because he was there firsthand when you know Miss Miss Coombs was attacked as well. So I guess they're establishing the idea that there there is something here in London that they need to figure out. And I'm glad they mentioned that it wasn't just him just pulling that out of thin air. That hey, it must be a werewolf. At least they try to explain that there's a little bit of a backstory that he has seen this before, and it, it was a werewolf. Like that, the werewolf that had killed the victim that he had seen in America was killed and identified as a werewolf. So what, this isn't a hundred you know, totally far fetched. For Paul to pull this out of, to, to so here's our prequel to... movie: is is Paul Ames in America uh, fighting werewolves, right? That'd be great <laughs> in like 1932 or something. We've had Abraham Lincoln fighting vampires, so now we've <laughs> right. <Paul>. Come on, <laughs> <laughs> could happen. Uh, if he was just a more interesting character, he's 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 a um, you know he's he's he serves his purpose, I guess. Yeah. So so now that now the cops are involved. Cops are involved in another really quick scene. We're back at uh, Glendon's home, and we see Wilfred and Lisa sitting down for breakfast. And Lisa wants, which is again, this is kind of funny. So Lisa comes with her to her husband that Paul Harold Bow has this wonderful idea that they should all go on a moonlight coach ride. Yeah, I mean, okay. I mean, this brings me back to again to like an Invisible Man, where there just seems to be some very strange fascinations with other people's girls. Yes, exa- um, exactly. Um, um, and, and I guess, I guess maybe this is Paul trying to convince Wilfred that, that there's nothing wrong going on. I don't, you know, trying to include him and stuff. They I, do seem to, and, and, and Lisa seems to w- want him to go. She, I don't think Lisa wants to, to stray from, not a, from their marriage. Not I, at I think, all. No. I think she just wishes, again, she just wishes he was more engaged uh, with, with what That's she's right. interested in doing. And she just wants, a, right. She just wants a part. And no, no, I think you're absolutely right. She has no, you know, nothing diabolical going on. She truly, and he, he agrees to go. If you remember the first scene is her, him agreeing to go and, or he says something to the fact, like, do you really want me to go? And she said, you know, more than you could ever imagine. So yeah. again, she is just starving for attention, starving for a partner. So, and he, you know, Wilfred and I does. think she's working to save their marriage. Really. Exactly. Yeah. She's almost desperate at this point. So I, I just kind of found that funny that, you know, of all the places to go, they, they're going on a, yeah, a moonlight moonlight coach ride with this dude. <laughs> Let, let's let's do it. <laughs> so a really quick scene. So now we're back in the lab and uh, Wilfred and his assistant Hawkins are talking about the flowers. So if you remember, Origami stole two of the flowers. So there is one left, but for whatever reason, they cannot get this thing to bud. So of course, at this point, Wilfred understands that he has been afflicted with werewolfism. Werewolfery. Werewolfery. <laughs> Werewolfery. So he's under the... <laughs> 
<laughs> he's under the uh, the sickness of werewolfery and understands that he needs his flower to bloom, and it's not blooming. So um, he's had his assistant Hawkins working with this moonlight in an attempt to get the flower to bud, and it hasn't isn't budding. So this is what right. Wilford's now finding out is that because the flower isn't budding, he is going to transform into you know werewolf tonight. And again, think about this whole, the date that Lisa just invited him on, this moonlight carriage ride with Paul. So of course, now Wilfred had agreed to go, understands that he's not going to have his antidote to go on this moonlight ride. So yeah. I would say at this point knows that he cannot accompany Lisa and Paul. You know, she's none too happy about. Yeah, yeah, she, she's she's actually disappointed. Yeah, Hawkins is interesting. Hawkins kind of like pops in and out a bit with with what goes on and 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 aids. You know, he he's always there. I mean, I guess he's his his, his Fritz or his Igor, uh, I guess. And I forget the. It's one of the Hammer movies, and it's. Oh, Revenge of Frank? No, it wasn't Revenge of Frankenstein, but he has a, the doctor, Victor has an assistant. It's, and he's very similar to this man. Kind of like the big, um, kind of goofy. Mm-hmm. And I, I, oh man, I forget his name, but yeah, kind of very similar character. But so Wolfram understanding that he's not going to have the cure in time tells Lisa and Paul that he's not able to go on the moonlight ride. And she, um, or he forbids her to go. He's thinking that we can't have this. Yeah. You basically gallivanting around the countryside with this. He calls him a stranger. And, you know, which Paul takes very much offense to because he's known her her whole life. But right. I, mean, I could see where Wilfred's coming from. You wouldn't want your wife going out night after night with this this guy so i can i can understand that but well you know there's two things going on there there's that aspect and then there's also the fact that he knows that that her going out puts her in in really real danger right because he knows right with the moon fill he's going to be you know from him mostly yeah asks her to come back before the moon is Mm. before the moon comes up so i'm not sure what he's his plan is if he's going to lock her up or right not lock her up but you know try to protect her somehow and She refuses and, you know, almost, you know, says, I, you know, you're not telling me what to do. I'm going to go out tonight. I'm going to go out for the next four or five nights if I want to. You do not have right. it. At that point, she's just, she's had it with her husband. I um, think this so. was kind of the last straw, right? Yeah, I, I think so. I would argue that going in an open carriage nighttime ride in downtown London in 35 presented quite a few dangers, probably, in addition to, to werewolves. I feel like it's probably not a smart idea anyway, but you never know. It, there's there's jealousy and there's love happening here where he, you know, he doesn't want her to go because he's jealous, but he also doesn't want her to go because he knows he, he he's it's been predicted that the werewolf, you know, goes goes to try to kill the thing he loves most and he knows she is the thing he he loves most. So I guess now with her out of his, I don't say out of his control, but out of his protection, yeah. really not much he can do. So actually, this is going to bring us into our next scene where he goes off looking for a room to stay at. So this is when we meet. He goes to just a, a I don't say call it a boarding house, but almost like an, an inn. So he meets. Yeah. And again, this I keep mentioning the Invisible Man, but meets you know kind of the Jenny Hall of this movie. If you remember <laughs> yes. the Invisible Man, the uh, Uno O'Connor character. Yeah, our Uno O'Connor's in uh, in uh, Mrs. Moncaster and Mrs. Wack, which by the way, Mrs. Wack is just such a, a such a name. name. Get out of here. I love that. Mrs. Wack. Mrs. Wack. <laughs> uh, and they're great. It's Ethel Griffiths and Zephy Tilby, these amazing two names of these these two actresses that have kind of a running um, they run the do they run the boarding house together or one of them runs it and one of them is just a customer? I can't. I it seems can't like they almost have conflicting boarding houses because oh, one of them yeah, maybe yeah, the one woman. Yeah, like well, they're almost in competition, like they're best friends and they're almost sister-like, but they yeah. have they're in competition with each other. But they're also big gin 
drinkers too and there's, <laughs> there's a lot of back and forth and stuff these these two are actually quite quite entertaining great. in a film that doesn't have it doesn't deal with a whole lot of comic relief they, they bring a lot of funny to it with without dare i say the scene chewing of uno connor they they're not quite on her decibel level <laughs> We're not going to like be disres- we're not going to be disrespectful, but I am with you a million percent. If, if Uno Connors at, at, turns it up to eleven, these these two ladies are at, at a entertaining six. Right, just the, oh, just the dialogue, the just the writing is really clever. It's like yeah, just the quips they're, back they're and fun. forth. It's it feels like they have known each other for sixty years. Yes, um, exactly, which is, makes and, it a lot of fun. And and I I got to say, if I was remaking this movie, uh, if Universal said, "Here you go, Jim, make." make your own version of Werewolf London, but you have to keep it in the same setting and everything, but you can change some stuff. I, I, I would actually make a story about these two ladies running a thing. It would almost be more like uh, arsenic and old lace, but these two competitive yet friendly ladies running a place and then they've got a werewolf lodger and they're, them trying to deal with the whole thing, what what's happening and what they're hearing from the, the news and the police and stuff like that. I think I think it's like a crossover. You do a crossover like Three's Company. And this could be like Mr. and Mrs. Roper. Exactly. exactly. Oh, Jack, oh, Jack Tripper, Jack so Tripper is the werewolf. <laughs> yeah, it'd be so much fun. But because I do, I, I love this setting. I, I I obviously enjoy this setting more than the the the, the Miss Coombs kind of era of the film and stuff. I think these ladies trying to figure out what to do with this guy as they get more and more suspicious about him is really fun. It's a lot of fun. Yeah, they do a really nice job. But uh, yeah, it's always kind of funny. So finally, one of the you know the women agree to you know let him rent a room, and you know, he's a little bit frazzled. So they're walking up the stairs, and it's such an odd line. So you know, Wolf returns to her out of nowhere and says, do you believe a man could turn into a wolf? <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> now, here he is. I mean, again, total strangers. So I'm, sh- I'm assuming he's trying to put on his best front. I mean, he, yeah. he needs his room, right? He's playing it real low key. In. Yeah, right. Exactly. Like, really low key, like trying to impress this woman, put on a good first impression. Hey, do you believe a man could turn into a wolf? Yeah. <laughs> so I'm assuming she's probably had like four or five gins at this point. She's probably like, yeah. oh, whatever. Like, yeah, I believe. Yeah. Whatever. Sure. Sure, but um, I just she seems to men a... turn into wolves. I believe in her. In her <laughs> if we if we want to quote the uh, the the Abbott and Costello film, um, but such a wacky moment. Like you know, what would uh, I'm just not sure why he would even you know why they would write that into the script. Yeah, but yeah, it's kind of compulsion. Funny. Um, and it's a great little set. That this this crooked like like stairway that takes like a few turns and stuff up to this room and stuff. I think it's a really it's very claustrophobic and it's you know the lighting works great because then it it, it casts these long shadows and stuff from the railing and and these two like old women and you know they're, they're this is 1935 and their attire is outdated for 1935 so it's, it's more like like 1918 type of the brooches and and overcoats and 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 hats and stuff the old people just trying to keep warm obviously in the london fog and everything um, right, right. yeah it's it's i just i enjoy the heck out of this section of the film so ultimately he does get the room and of course it's another full moon night and he transforms into a werewolf and you know landlady hears the growling and the howling and yeah makes us a little suspicious, but I think she has her gin and she's just happy to just kind of ignore things. And mm-hmm. so next scene, we find Wilfred at the, at the London Zoological Gardens, where we see a prostitute approaching a guard and they have kind of an odd, you know, little back and oh, forth. Oh, that's right. That, I forgot know, about that. Yeah. You don't, you don't love your wife. You don't love your kids. You love me. You're going to leave, whatever, like yeah. a little banter back and forth that this prostitute is trying to, you know, get, get this guard to leave his wife. And meanwhile, Werewolf Wolford is, you know, watching this all go down and, you know, there's wolves. You can see there's wolves in the cages that actually Wolford lets one of them go loose. Right. And, you know, the guard. one of his brothers free. <laughs> like freedom, brother, freedom. Um, so the guard hears all this howling. So leaves 
the prostitute to go investigate. And of course, this is now Werewolf Wolfred's time to move in. And um, we have another kill off screen of the prostitute. Yeah, yeah sadly off screen. I mean, you know, it, you, you see the slight difference. So this is 1935. This is uh, one year after the, the Breen comes in and you have the motion picture production code, uh, you know, established. And I think there's around this time, you see a lot of films, you know, as opposed to the pre-code ones, you see a lot of the films suddenly start getting very demure about showing anything kind of violence or anything kind of, you can even see it in um, one of the Buck Rogers serials, the Ga- Gale, is it Gale? the female in, in uh, Buck Rogers. I can't remember the, the characters. Anyway, anyway, the actress playing her is wearing actually Zita Johan's top from the mummy, but you know, the mummy is pre-code obviously in Buck Rogers, that top, there's all this material that's been added to it because the top in the mummy is obviously quite kind of revealing. A lot of films get very careful about showing violence, sexuality, even alluding to a lot of things. And, and Werewolf of London, I think, falls into that where, you know, it's the, the new, new rules were kind of new and they're careful about what they're showing as opposed to, you know, even a few years later, we get into the Wolfman. And while a lot of the action happens sometimes behind trees or things like that, you still do have some sort of like wolf on person action. <laughs> in, in those yeah. films. I mean, yeah, you remember him and, you know, like Sir John, you know, that last scene of him be just being beaten by the stick. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. not, it's, it's savage looking. It's really, it you know, with, without showing a whole lot of blood or a whole lot of gore, they do, or even a, uh, a, uh, Larry fighting with with Bella as the wolf in the beginning of the film. It's still pretty savage. Oh, sure. It's it's sure. It's, 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 it's freaking Lon Chaney Jr. fighting a dog. It's, it's kind of frightening. Yeah. Oh, the scene too with um, Evelyn Anchor is like he grabs her and he's like really whipping yeah. her around yeah. and like, God, oh, yeah. that poor girl. It's pretty intense. So so here we have a we have a, a much more uh cautious approach to to showing those types of scenes. And again, it's that thing where, like I say, like you're doing a werewolf movie and you kind of can't show the werewolf attacking anybody. It does it does neuter your effect to a point where uh, uh you have to compensate with it. And and with all these old movies like Dracula, like and stuff like I say, like they compensate with mood and with atmosphere and with with performance and and with you you know, startling visuals like just like I go back to that scene with with Miss Coombs and you know Glendon as the as the werewolf coming at her slowly and he's underlit uh, by a, a light and he's kind of coming into the focus from her perspective and it's it is chilling they they do a good job of of compensating for what they weren't allowed to do yeah that might be the best scene in this whole movie going back yeah. I mean that yeah. really is is I mean just it's really effective the camera work the lighting yeah that is a really nice scene. So, yeah. all right. Cool. So we've got, I'll get a dead um, prostitute off screen and we're kind of entering, I'll say the final act of the film. So it's a couple of short scenes. Um, we'll kind of go past. So I guess one of the kind of the fi- last final scene or final landscape of the movie is now Wilford back in human form. Can't return to the hotel because of yeah. <laughs> the way he left or can't return to the inn, I should say. So he visits and this, I'm a little, little bit confused. Maybe you can help me out with this. So it's a, it's, it looks like it's a, it's a house of a family friend. Looks like almost a small castle, small mansion called yeah. Monk's Rest, which is Monk's basically Rest, yeah. almost like a little dungeon within this, this castle. So yeah. meet somebody named Timothy and um, clearly they know each other it sounds like it was a destination that they used to go to back that it's not like maybe friends of his wife lisa or i don't know this is a little bit confusing exactly like how the connection between Wolfram. I find it confusing yeah. too. It's it's not his friend that he's in Tibet with, right? No, again, it feels like it's it was it, he was friends with Lisa's parents. 
because he makes mention of you know when Lisa's oh. parents were alive, we used to have the best parties. I, I yeah so it, yeah yeah. I, it, I think it's just someplace maybe they used to go together. I'm not I'm not entirely sure. Whatever. It was I, just, would, I would I would invite anyone who knows to let us know yeah, and help us in. out because because we need strange. we need we need our own edification sometimes. All right. So it just seems like maybe a place that when you know when they were younger, Wilfred and Lisa, maybe when they were dating, they used to go to like you know Christmas parties. Yeah. Whatever it is. So it's a you know think of a little mini castle with a dungeon, and this is why Wilfred is going here because he wants to be locked in this dungeon so timothy takes him downstairs and wolford says you know lock me in take the key do not open this door no matter what if you hear me screaming yelling you leave me in here and timothy's like oh, okay that's yeah, fine yeah. <laughs> sure and then meanwhile lisa and paul are back just going for a car ride and looking for i think lisa says let's go you know visit some old hangouts basically paul's leaving for Going back to America. So he is right. a place. He's, he's established himself in America. So he only has another day or two left. Yeah. They're making well, he, the most of it before he has to go. And she that's to right. Go back They're to, trying to right, visit the old haunts. Living with her buzzkill husband. <laughs> <laughs> so visiting the old haunts. And of course, Lisa, where does she choose, is to come to the same house that Wilfred's uh, at. So Lisa and Paul pull up, get out of the car, and they're going for a nice walk. And meanwhile, Wilfred has transformed for his final time into the werewolf and sees Lisa through kind of through the bars. Um, and I, you wonder if you wonder if the Universal just had like a dungeon castle set sitting around for some reason. And someone decided like, hey, instead of going here, let's have him go to this little castle or something. <laughs> you never know. Was seemed left a little, over seemed from a little like out a, of place. Seemed a little out of place, right? Yeah, I'm not sure. Like, yeah, it seems like that would be quite a bit out of out from London if they get to some sort of like kind of country squire castle estate or something. But you never know. So he sees Lisa and breaks out. So again, he's in full right. werewolf mode now. Breaks open the the bars and jumps out. And it's actually a really great scene. He's kind of on the top of um, the rooftop and jumps on Paul. So it doesn't kill right. him, but it's a really nice little action scene of you know he lands on Paul, knocks him unconscious, and then starts coming after Lisa. Again, nobody's nobody's really hurt or killed, but kind of kind of stalking her a bit. And then Paul wakes up at some point and then picks up, I think, a branch. So basically he kind of comes up behind Wolford and hits him over the head. I believe just a big branch and knocks him unconscious and then picks Lisa up, who is, I don't want to say injured, but just you know, unconscious and right. probably in shock, and carries her off. Kind of an odd scene after this. So we see we see Paul and Lisa, or Paul carrying Lisa off, and then we've got this montage of really quick shots of everybody, pretty much everybody in the movie who's not Wilfred on the phone. Remember this one? Right. It's like everyone is like a, a five seconds. Like, have you seen? Have you seen Wilfred? No. Yeah. Have you seen Dora yeah. from Origami? No. Well, where are they? I don't know. But it's like ten different people on the phones having <laughs> like these one or two word conversations. It's kind of kind of interesting. It's it's it's, it's odd and yet totally effective. It, you're like, okay, no. It's, it's, there's there's some talk going on. What's happening? What's going on? And stuff. I mean, now everyone would be texting each other or posting on on social media. Uh, at this point, they're all like you know ringing one another up. So basically, nobody knows where Wilfred and nobody knows yeah. where Dark Dark Yuragami is. Yeah, that's basically what they're trying to get across. Of course, <laughs> final scene. We're back in Wilfred's lab, and Wilfred finds that his last flower has finally bloomed. And of course, the evil Colin Doctor Yuragami is extremely you know, selfish. Doctor Yuragami, very selfish. Yeah, he's not willing to share the flower. Hour, comes down and he's again so right on the verge of another full moon night so Yuragami is down to steal that last flower and they begin to have a fight 
and Yorigami actually grabs the flower before Wilfred sees him and either pricks himself or you know whatever it is. Yeah. So within 10 to 15 seconds of the moon, you know, finally hits and Wilfred changes into the will one more time and Yorigami does not. So they have this big fight on the staircase and Yorigami is killed by which, which, which ironically, Yorigami pricking himself and keeping himself from turning into the wolf puts him at a decided disadvantage when the two end up having their fight. <laughs> right. That probably killed him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, had he been the wolf, it would have been a more even match, but of course not so much. Yeah. So, I mean, ultimately Yogami's killed and then right on time, the, <laughs> the Colonel enters, enters another door um, with a gun and shoots Wilford from behind. So kind of a, uh, you know, nice, touching scene here and this is kind of completes the arc for the most yeah. part of, of wilfred so again colonel well, Wil- wilfred is is then after yogami's dead he's he's going after lisa right isn't lisa right there somehow goes um, after lisa right right yeah. you're right and then colonel comes yeah. in shoots and, and the colonel comes in and, and, and shoots him and and we have you know uh you know he he falls back down and and we do it we do have a nice uh like a lapse dissolve transform transformation scene where he kind of goes back into into human form and he has this great pulpy line of dialogue that just stands out from the film. It's kind of funny. It just says, thanks for the bullet, which is <laughs> I love, like, like some, I want to write something just cause it's called thanks for the bullet. Um, uh, cause, cause it is, it's, it's at this point now, not, not a silver bullet. We haven't really gotten to this uh, part in the mythology yet. This comes a few years later. Thanks to Maria Alspinskaya. Right. It was, a, well, it was a silver bullet. And then I'll, later on, it becomes, it needs to be fired from the hand of somebody who loves somebody you. Loves and so it just, it, get, it, it gets more and more complicated. So, right, right, right. <laughs> only, only the one who loves. Yeah, right, right, right. When the, when the, when the girl uh, shoots Larry at the end. Right, right. Because um, at first it could be just be a silver hand and cane or a silver hand, you know, silver anything. But but he, uh, yeah, yeah, Dr. Glendon shot with a regular old bullet falls down this back down the stairs he falls backwards down the stairs I, I always like how he ends up almost upside down um and transforms back and 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 he and uh he and lisa are able to you know have a moment together finally sort of at the end where he does it's obvious that it's obvious from the fact of from our perspective that he loves her because he she was the one he was trying to kill and the world tries to kill the thing he loves most the last thing he says to her is i'm sorry i couldn't make you more happy yeah yeah, I mean, exactly. That, so again, so now we're coming full circle. Um, you know, never not loved her. I mean, he was selfish. He was, you know, an ass sometimes, but never yeah. not loved his wife. And no, no, yeah. I mean, in in his own way or to his own capacity, I guess we should say. Uh, yeah, yeah. It, you know, the whole the film is it's kind of a noirish werewolf film, and I think that's that's the main uh, that's its main lasting thing on me is 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 it's this kind of hard boiled thirties. Well, it starts off kind of gentle and you know with the culture class and stuff it ends up being this kind of like not a detective show movie but it becomes this like very high key black and white pulpy i should say uh werewolf uh tale and stuff and and it's the thing that really keeps pulling me back in to, to watch this every once in a while me too i mean for an early earlier iteration again you know wolfman will always be you know yeah. that'll always be the line to that you know everyone's you know that's our benchmark for. yeah that's I, our I bench agree. yeah the wolfman is the benchmark you know the 1941 wolfman yeah this one is a good film between i mean the costumes the acting and again i you know, maybe some people don't like the just the makeup because it's not chainy it's a little bit more subdued i right. really like it i think that it for exactly what they're trying to cross so 
you know, what the, part of the the reason that he is he's outed is because Lisa and you know people recognize him when he's in in Wolf, um, yeah, you know, yeah. werewolf mode. People can unknow that it's him. I mean, Lisa, and we didn't really get into it, but you know, when he's attacking her on the staircase, she knows it's Wilfred. She she knows, yeah, she knows it's him, and he is he's very recognizable even within that in that state. Yeah, no, it's which 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 is cool. It's just I like this idea of like being able to see. I uh I dressed up as a wolf man one time in I think fourth or fifth grade for Halloween. Uh, and I glued hair all over my face and I had a snout and I had, a, I had the whole thing going on. And I went trick-or-treating and one of the neighbors was like, oh, hey, Jimmy. And I was like, oh, man, I was so Dang it. disappointed. <laughs> and she, she just recognized my eyes, right? You know, because I didn't change those. I didn't have contacts or anything, obviously being like, you know, in grade school. But uh, it was so disappointing. But that is that is an interesting idea is that yeah he he it doesn't he's a wolf version of himself uh, again just to reiterate he's not a whole different thing he doesn't transform into a different thing he his his being changes slightly yeah i mean imagine yourself with a widow's peak and a little hairier in fangs and that's pretty yeah. much what you have here and i think again it works really well store in your your nice dapper clothes that's right uh, yeah Fun, fun stuff. Uh, Hull, you know, would go on and be in, in High Sierra and the Fountainhead, and he was in Hitchcock's Lifeboat. Did uh, Jazz Singer, he did, fam- I, I'm, he would go on, he, he would do Fu Manchu too at some point. Went on to have uh, some some other issues later on in life and stuff. Obviously, our our, our lead actress goes on and becomes the new uh, Baroness Frankenstein. Um, yeah, released just a month after this movie, actually. So same, yeah. same year, yeah, within a month. Um, and and this movie, interesting, interestingly, it comes, it comes out before Bride of Frankenstein, but while this uh, Carl, Carl Halos is credited as the composer, there is a lot of Franz Voxman's Bride of Frankenstein score in this in this movie. Like you, you hear it a lot. It, it, a lot of the cues pop up. So interesting little hybrid there. Like this film, it always feels like a 1931 film to me, not a 1935. It, it There's just a certain amount of clunkiness that I... I for some reason, I always thought this was an earlier film than it is. It's just a little bit uh, more. It feels more like it was made right in the. And we're only, we're we're only talking about years here, but it still looks like it's made like right in the Invisible Man era, where we're still figuring out a little bit of the stuff about sound uh, filmmaking, as opposed to forty one. You know, only a few years later, which the industry becomes so much more polished. The camera work, sets, dialogue, performance, audio, everything. But I do think that slight crudeness is what gives it some of its its uh, spark and and starts part part of what uh, I dig about it. Me too. This is a fantastic movie. So glad we were able to cover it. Everybody, thank you for listening to the Borgo Passover podcast. I'm Jim Towns. I'm Scott Kelly. Thank you again so much. Take care now. Thank you for listening to this episode. But the fun does not stop here. You can follow and interact with the show's hosts and listeners online on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. The Borgo Pass Horror Podcast is a presentation of Shadow Camera Film and Entertainment. This episode was edited by Livio Marino. The music was composed by Sean Poole. Opening and closing narration are by me, Kat Ahrens. Show titles and graphics created by Jim Towns. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Borgo Pass Horror Podcast. Podcast.